I don't know if this is a thing for you guys as much as it is for me, but every now and again I come across an episode... Well, I shouldn't say it like that. I come across several episodes as I'm re-watching these shows. Now, obviously, this is for the rumination, but I mean, just when I rewatch these shows in general, and I look at the episode name and I'm like, Starship Down? Is that the one where they crashed on the beach planet? No, that was later. That was... What is this episode? And I just have that problem. I think I've mentioned this before. This happened in Voyager. This has happened in DS9. This happened in TNG as well, where I'm like, which episode is that? Because sometimes, to be completely blunt, episodes are a little bit forgettable. Now, it's weird that I think that, because having rewatched this, I actually really liked this episode, like way more than I was expecting to for an episode I basically forgot. Reading up on this, apparently a lot of people didn't like this episode, which is funny. This episode actually did several things, uh, fairly specific. First of all, it was a deliberate attempt to do a submarine episode, which is funny because they'll do another one of those later on, kind of. And it was an attempt to try and showcase, you know, the dangers of space and reiterate the Dominion as a threat. Oh, and to show that Worf isn't fitting in. Once again, to be as blunt as I can, you'll notice Worf still really isn't a character in this episode. I'm sure by this point you're starting to argue with me on that, but I stand firm in this statement. Worf isn't a character. He's... Shouting orders, shouting orders. This is unacceptable, shouting orders. Oh, I should be more flexible. Okay, shouting orders flexibly. Fle shouting orders flexibly. And that's Worf's character the whole episode. That's not Worf. <laughs> I'm sorry. And you could completely replace him with virtually anyone else, even a generic, like, lieutenant of the week, and it still wouldn't really affect anything. So Worf is still not a character. Don't worry, we're getting there. I also have to say... Um, I kind of liked the CGI. Now, I actually talked about this. I believe the episode that this really came up was The Swarm over in Voyager. But it's been several years since I looked into that, so I don't remember exactly. But right about that period of time, they started really experimenting with using CGI more heavily when it came to Star Trek. It was some, In fact, they actually brought over several of the people who had worked on Babylon 5 who had learned quite a few things and lessons about how to do sci-fi CGI over on Babylon 5 and were then working on it over here. I'm reasonably certain that, you know, that was a good thing and led to some pretty cool stuff. But this is the first time, really, we got to see this kind of CGI. This is, of course, before uh, The Swarm. Yes, yes, it was. All right, I had to check in my head to make sure, yes, this was before The Swarm. And um, you can kind of see the results here. So we had some CGI for The Defiant and some CGI for the, uh, the Jem'Hadar fighters, which kind of works in this giant gaseous cloud. And by the way, I want to mention something. I saw several people, this was even in the magazine I was reading about this episode, uh, several people were like, ah, we should have had it underwater. It should have been a water thing. Nobody liked the fact that it was gas. Am I the only person who liked the fact that it was gas? I was reminded of the subtle yet insidious nature, the quietly horrifying thought of gas leaking in to a starship. Think about that for a second. In fact, Voyager did something with that eventually with, um, I believe that was Year of Hell, but I'm not sure exactly when they hide in the nebula and bits of the nebula are getting into the ship. That was terrifying. And of course, it's implied terror. It'd be kind of the same thing in the submarine thing if you look down and there's just puddles of water in the submarine, right? Like, it's just, whoa, that shouldn't be, right? And, of course, as they mentioned, it's very, you know, deadly. Oh, God, inhaling, this is ter terrible stuff. And, uh, okay, so we get to the episode proper. Um, it turns out that the uh, Karemin are still trading with the Federation via the Ferengi. I am astonished they're willing to do that, given the fact that there's already been extensive hostilities between the Dominion and 
everyone on the other side of that wormhole. I mean, <laughs> I'm actually legitimately curious what the Dominion you know, order is right now when it comes to Alpha Quadrant and Beta Quadrant interactions. Because you can't tell me that these interactions are going completely unnoticed, right? In fact, for that matter, considering the fact that the Dominion obviously doesn't approve of this kind of activity, why are they having this meeting on the Defiant on the other side of the wormhole? Why not bring them over here to D-Space-9 and then do their business and send them back? Now you might say, well, that's just as damning, but... <sighs> Obviously, they know they're trading anyways. The mere fact that they're aware that they're trading anyways indicates there's some kind of other problem here. So the problem isn't two Jem'Hadar fighters and, and making a, a, a showing of this, this is what you get if you trade with them. Uh, given what we know the Dominion is willing to do to its member states, this might be the end of the Kremen as a people. Why are they willing to risk this is what I'm trying to say. It actually brings to mind, it would have been an interesting storyline if the next couple of episodes were all about trying to get them the hell off of their planet. Literally a planetary or system-wide evacuation as quickly as they can while the Dominion fleet is coming in to just pound them into the dust. I think there's some good potential for some good storytelling there, but what the hell do I know? Anywho, so of course Quark is cheating them because Quark is Quark. Um... There's this bit where the, you know, the Dominion ship shows up and the other ship's like, no, and runs into a gas giant. That says a lot about how afraid these people are of the, of the Jem'Hadar, that they're willing to flee, flee into a gas giant to get away. It also probably says a lot about the Jem'Hadar because the Jem'Hadar follow them without hesitation and still fight for some time in a gas giant. Sure. <laughs> There's also this bit where they're like, I think I've discovered them 40, 400 kilometers down. Now, I know gas giants are actually pretty big, but 40, 400 clicks down, that's a significant increase in pressure. I am just astonished they just decided to go with that, but whatever. So, they seal the bulkhead, everything goes out, stuff happens, blah, 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 and we reach the disaster part of the episode. Now, unfortunately, like I said, I don't have much to say about it. It's all pretty good character stuff. Um, everyone just kind of pairs off, like in disaster. We've got Cork and Hanok. We've got Cisco and Kira, we've got Bashir and Dax, and we've got Worf, O'Brien, and the two guys whose names I don't remember, and that's how the episode kind of pairs off. The thing is, while most of this stuff is good, two of those pairings I have basically nothing to say about. The Worf thing I've already commented on. Like, it's just, you should learn to be more loose. Okay, and he instantly learns how to be more loose, and it instantly works, and everything's just better. Sure... I do have to comment that that is kind of an interesting idea and approach to management in general. The idea that you need to trust people to do their jobs within the competency that they have and allow them some leniency without micromanaging them, while at the same time being capable of coordinating and helping them and, of course, making sure they don't go too loose. It's actually a kind of an interesting... Uh, challenge is the word I want to use. Back when I actually worked as a manager for several years... That was a horrific challenge all the time, trying to maintain that balance point. I'm sure I messed up constantly. Anywho, um, so that's kind of neat, but otherwise there's not much to say about it. Then we cut to the other uh, part that really has not much to say about, and that's Dax and uh, Bashir. Bashir does, let's be honest with herself, the foolish and stupid thing to try and save Dax. Does successfully save her, so that's nice. Um, 
At the same time, though, not much is done. I mean, there's some good dynamic between the characters and the actors. And there's this great bit where he admits that, you know, he, uh, at one point in time, back when he was still lusting after her, that he used to have these stupid fantasies. And she's like, wow, that's a really stupid fantasy. And he's like, yeah, it's okay. And there's also the bit, and this is actually kind of funny because we've known this for some time, but we finally get an in-character confirmation between the two of them that she actually did enjoy the pursuit. And of course she did. Why wouldn't she? It kind of makes, you know, it makes you feel nice to know that someone wants you well enough to be so overtly stupid in their pursuit of you, right? It's, it's just this kind of little thing. So, of course, that's perfectly in character for Dax. And Bashir is basically past that at this point, so he, there's, no, there's no hint of any romantic tint here. And that's kind of what I like about it. I know that sounds strange. But instead, this is portrayed as a solely these two friends who are exploring some of the dynamic they used to have as characters. So, that's it. Now, the other two coordinations, these are much more interesting. So first I want to talk about Quark and Hanok. First of all, Quark is played by Armin Shimmerman. I, I know. Bear with me, I've got more world-shattering announcements here. But I say that because Armin Shimmerman is a really good person to play off someone. It's one of his strengths as an actor. And the other, and the other person, Hanok, is played by James Cromwell, who is an amazing actor who is... Really good at playing off people. So pretty much every scene between Hanok and Cork is just gold. It's just the two actors bouncing off of each other, and it just goes. It just gels perfectly. So Cork initially approaches him with the idea of... He basically gambles. Now this is funny, because the episode never acknowledges this, but it's one of the su more subtle points about it. Cork later on posits and, and talks about the... <sighs> the benefits of gambling, the, how gambling can be a good thing, and just because you lose doesn't mean you quit the game, which is actually good, good advice, really. Not always good advice. In fact, I think a more complex advice, such as knowing when to hold them and knowing when to fold them, might be more useful, but I know I'm quoting a song, but in all seriousness, that is actually really good advice. Knowing when to hold, knowing when to fold, knowing when to walk, knowing when to run is legitimately good advice, and it takes experience and wisdom to get to that point. Now, what's funny is Quark is kind of positing that sort of behavior. The ha Hanok doesn't really get it. He see, and we get a tiny insight into their particular mentality and culture for economics, because obviously they care about economic in infrastructure. They're still willing to trade with the frickin' Federation, despite a almost state of war between the Federation and the Dominion. And yet they look at it so clinically... There's something fascinating about that. There's a story that I really feel could be told there about the idea of how they maybe look at it as if, maybe not religiously, that's a, it's a wrong word, but you know, look at it as if there's something sacrosanct about the transaction, about the economic purpose of existence, about trying to constantly increase overall value in a linear and logical fashion, right? Without all of the let's call it what it is, bullcrap, that the Ferengi do. As I've mentioned before, most Ferengi are not good businessmen. So, you know. And then um, he mentions this thing. He actually <coughs> he has a line here, excuse me. You know, greed leads to misjudgment, which leads to loss of profit. First of all, I like that because that's true. That is so overwhelmingly true if you look at any aspect of human history, economically or industrially, you'll see that greed leads to lack of pro loss of profit. In fact, greed usually leads to total self-destruction, if we're just being honest with ourselves, depending on how long you take it. And Lord knows the Ferengi themselves are a good example of that. 
What I find most fascinating is Cork does not dispute that. Instead, he says, but you might win. You might be greedy and lose like I did. However, you might be greedy and win like I didn't. He calls it like gambling. And, of course, this is when the more obvious aspect of the gambling nature kind of pulls into it. You know, the idea of that. I, I'm sorry, I didn't continue, finish my thought there, did I? <laughs> this is my sixth episode today. This is not a new record. I've done seven in one day before, but I'm kind of out of it. My point is that Cork gambled. He had a choice after he had you know, been caught by uh, Hanok. He had a choice. He could have said, you know, you're right, you're sorry, yeah, here's my new option, and basically kind of folded to continue the terminology. Or he could have held and doubled down and said, well, you know, yeah, you're smart and you're, you're greedy and you're good. Think about how much you could make over on the Federation, you know, stuff like that. He doubled down, in other words. And he lost because Hanok found his actions and his tone despicable. And I like that Quark actually demonstrates the very thing that he is positing as a positive in this very episode. So then, of course, he espouses the nature of gambling. And Hanok's like, I don't know. Then we get the torpedo thing. Notice that Quark immediately deduces they need to disable that thing. Quark's not an idiot, and I do like when episodes don't treat him like an idiot. He realizes that torpedo goes off. This is a problem. Beaming it out isn't going to happen for whatever reason because it hasn't already happened. And simply leaving the ship or trying to remove themselves, that's not going to work either. No, they have to disarm that. He comes to the deduction very quickly and immediately moves over to do something about it. So, he goes over to do something about that. And they start diagnosing and working them through it. And we find out that these people actually sell torpedoes to the Jem'Hadar. Question, why do the Jem'Hadar buy anything? I know that sounds like a strange thing to bring up, but I, I feel like the Dominion could certainly have a still fully functioning economic infrastructure and flow-through, an economy, in other words, without needing to attach the Vorta or the Jem'Hadar to that economy. Yet apparently they do. Huh, not sure what I think of that. It's something that could be discussed and never will be. Anywho... <clears throat> And then there's this great scene where Hanok's like, I have to pick one of these things. One of them is wrong, and one of them is right. Okay, which one do I pick? Well, you, you have to just pick one. No, no, you're thinking about it too much. And then there's this great scene, and again, both actors playing off each other, where Quark just grabs one and pulls it out, and both of them are like, oh my god, oh my god, okay, okay, <laughs> we didn't blow up. And of course, the episode ends with him having successfully learned the lesson, winning at Dabo, and, of course, continuing trade negotiations with the Alpha Quadrant. In the Alpha Quadrant this time, a little safer. Maybe you should have done that the first time. But then we wouldn't have had the episode, I know. That just leaves me with Cisco and Kira. I hope to God I never have the problem of being some kind of religious figure. Like, I know that sounds like a weird thing, because, of course, there's nothing that would indicate that. But, like, like if I ever took over the world or whatever, I would really hope no one ever founds a religion around me, because that would just not be something I'd want. I sympathize with Cisco here a lot. I do, you know, I don't like the fact that you think I'm some great emissary from the prophets, that I am a central figure, arguably the central figure, more so than the Kai, in your religion. I, I, sorry, let me reword that. In your belief structure. I don't want to call it a religion, because the emissary has very little political power in the religion of the Bajorans. But they do have tremendous... The emissary has tremendous presence and personal significance in the belief structure of many Bajorans, including Kira. 
And there's this great bit. She's sitting there and she starts talking to him. And she automatically starts talking. She mentions this four-duty rotation thing, which is actually something that is continuity, by the way. They end up start doing that in the episodes. It's weird. Um, and that's so, again, this is a nice subtle point because, as is mentioned, despite how close Kira and Cisco are, they are f- co-workers. They are professional close. They're not friends. And so you just kind of see this, the, what, okay, I need to talk to keep him awake. So the first thing she does is she talks about work, because it's what they always talk about. And then she realizes that she's putting him to sleep, and she's like, okay, I don't know what to do now. And so Cisco says, tell me a story. So she starts telling this, this Bajoran tale, you know, mythos tale or uh, morality tale or whatever you want to call it. And I really like it because not a visitor is amazing, first of all. As an aside, this is a really weird thing to comment on, but I really like it when Nana Visitor smiles. She has a really nice smile. Anyways, so she's like sitting here, and she's so nervous and worried and afraid, and she's like, okay, listen, I know you hate this, but you're the emissary. You can't die. There's more stuff that needs to happen, okay? So I'm just going to pray because I don't know what else to do. And she just starts praying on the spot for him. Now, whether or not that had any impact, who knows? She did also give him the stimulant, after all. And so we're allowed to make up our own mind on that. Could have been neither, could have been both, could have been one or the other. But something made Cisco come back around. Prophets, excuse me. And she's so happy to see him. And there's that wonderful bit towards the end of the episode in the coda where he invites her to go out and enjoy a baseball game with him just so the two could have some kind of social interaction that doesn't involve work. It's a nice step, and I like it a lot. Of course, she's not sure why you need to heat up dogs, but whatever, she'll get used to it. Cork apparently knows about this, so we'll figure it out. An enjoyable episode. I hope you liked it. I'll see you guys next time.